Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today our guest is David M. Addison, author of An Innocent Abroad and Still Innocent Abroad. This is an account of David's experiences as an exchange teacher in 1970s Montana, when he and his family travelled across to the United States from Scotland to spend a year in the American education system. I think it's fair to say, David, that this has been an interesting experience for you to write about. Oh, absolutely, Tom. It's the, I look back on it now, you know, and I think it's the best thing, you know, that I ever did. I've made so many, you know, good friends there. And it's, it was just a wonderful experience in, in so many ways. Funnily enough, Montana wasn't my choice of destination. What happened was that I was paid by the Exchange Bureau. Uh, you know, my fare was paid. But also I had to pay my wife and the children. So I asked if I could be put to the eastern seaboard somewhere so I didn't have to you know, get involved in paying a whole lot of fares across the country. And as it happens, they gave me Montana, which is just about as far as you can get. But, you know, I was so, so grateful that that was where I was put, you know, because the, the scenery is stupendous. To, to the north, there's Glacier Park. To the bottom, there's Yellowstone Park, you know. And I just landed so, so, so luckily. If I could have chosen it myself, you know, that, that's where I would have gone. But it was ironic that uh, it, it wasn't really my f- first choice of places, but I certainly don't regret it. Now, one of the things that really comes out of both books um, is the accommodating and welcoming people that you meet in Montana, but also the many cultural differences that you encountered along the way. Mm, That's very true. As I said, I'm still friends with a good number of people there. And, you know, I sort of felt almost like I had celebrity status. Um, You know, my Scottish accent was a, a sort of passport to so many places and, and people you know they they you'd go into a bar or something and say oh where are you from you know and then they'd say oh Scotland you know and so you know trying to turn people away from buying me drinks you know was <laughs> not a very hard thing to do but uh, yes the, the, I, I was overawed by just how friendly Everyone was, but I think that was partly to do with it being Montana. I mean, the town I was in, Missoula, was a small town, really, by American standards. And I think that contributed to the the friendliness. I think, just by and large, it is a very friendly place to, 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 to be. It was a funny thing, you know, I one day... We walked up to the town centre, and uh, a man there reversed his push bike into me, and he turned out to be a teacher who had been on exchange the previous year to to England, actually. So that was another friend, you know, that that, that I made, and then 
you know, word got about that I, I was in town and then I was contacted by someone who was in charge of the Scottish Heritage Society. So that brought, you know, another whole raft of people, you know, that, that I, I met. On the matter of cultural differences, I, I, again, ironically, I didn't really expect that to happen. I mean, I thought we spoke the same language, sort of. But what really got to me was the absolutely relaxed, laid-back attitude, you know, in 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 the in the school. Um, I was seen as a very uh, straight, <laughs> uh, straight-laced, very formal sort of person, you know, in contrast to all my peers. You know, I mean, my teaching colleagues. And the the way the the kids were just so laid back, and I mean, they just did hardly any work. <laughs> I mean, and they, by contrast, were amazed at how much um, work I was giving them to do. I mean, one other thing was my class had only eighteen students. Whereas I was used to almost twice that number. And I had a holiday, really, because whilst I tried to produce more writing from these kids, I mean, they just really revolted. The parents were up in arms about me. And so I just said, well, I was here to do it their way. You know, I wasn't there as a reformer. I was there to just see how they did. So actually... I just sort of like took my foot off the pedal a bit and I had a fabulously relaxing year from a professional point of view. Well, it's a little known fact, at least on this side of the Atlantic, that Montana as a state features a town called Glasgow, which I'm told has very little in common with the Glasgow that we know and love here in Scotland. One of the things that you mention in both of your books is the fascination that many people in America have with Scotland and Scottish culture. Was this something that you came across quite regularly? Yes, it was. I mean, I think it's actually anywhere you go abroad that a Scottish accent, you know, does seem to open doors somehow. Um, I was a bit of a, what would you say, a rare bird, you know, a sort of rare species, you know, that had just flown in. And, um, you know, just, you know, a person... Like in the bank, for example, you know, she had Scottish ancestry. And, uh, you know, I was invited to her house, you know, to meet her friends and so on, you know. It's, uh, as I said, you know, it was it's just a wonderful experience. I'd, I'd never been made such a fuss of in my life, you know, when I went there. We did actually, in, on our travels, uh, go to Glasgow, Montana, uh, was miles and miles and miles away from Missoula, way across the other side of the state. And it's just a wee totty wee town, you know. <laughs> it's completely different from the Glasgow we know, yes. And just along the road from Malta, I'm told. Yes, we, we went to Malta, and Malta's very interesting because um, another thing that uh, Montana does, it has dinosaurs, you know. Uh, so that yes, and that's another thing about the the year that we had there. It gave us an enormous chance 
to travel. Um, uh, for example, one Christmas, we went to see my relations in Canada, it, you know, near Vancouver. Funnily enough, um, not Scottish, they're on my, my mother's side of the family. But uh, I bought a car by this time, and in the depths of winter, we set off to cross the Rockies. You know, the, the saying about angels go, you know, and it was a bit of an adventure, crossing the Rockies in snow. It's, if I, it's because I didn't know, you know, the, the sort of hazards that we might experience, you know. And anyway, fortunately, we did it, you know, but um, it, it, it was just another chance to, to see these relatives that I would never have really met. And, and then, uh, apart from that, we travelled right across the whole of the United States. We went down to Mexico, up the coast, all the way, up to um, Vancouver, and then across all the way down to Florida, and then back up the way to um, Washington, D.C. It's it's something that I would never have been able to do if I'd never applied for and been given the, the exchange. Best thing I ever did, as I said. Now, you've made some mention of a few of the differences between teaching in Scotland in the late 1970s and the education system in America. Where would you say were the major areas of culture shock between the two? Well, I think it was... Again, I can only say it was my experience in that particular school. I think if I'd been somewhere else, you know, it might have been, um, you know, completely different. But nevertheless, um, my, my experience was... As I said, just the the way that the students were not prepared to do any work, or very, very little work, and the way they protested vociferously at being made to do something at all. But I was told that that was the particular school that I was in, that if I'd been in another school in the same town, I wouldn't have found, you know, such a relaxed attitude or a couldn't-care-less attitude to their work. And the parents were very, very quick to protest about the amount of work I was giving the children to do. And it was a case, really, of the tail wagging the dog in, in many cases, you know. I mean, I had one girl, for example, who, I'd, I'd, I think it was a misunderstanding, but I'd given out a worksheet, you know, that was meant to last weeks and weeks. And I think she thought it had all to be done the next day or something like that, but or maybe not. But anyway, she said, oh, I'm not doing all this. And next thing, there's the mother standing at my desk. I mean, just walking straight in, up to my room, you know. And that was a bit of a shock. And another time I was accosted in the the uh, park, you know. The, we took the kids to the public park to play their sort of football or whatever it was, you know. 
And, and uh, P.M. Kim accosted me there. It's all in the book, you know, these incidents. But the other thing was that surprised me, shocked me, was the way that I was expected. It was wall-to-wall kids from whenever we started to whenever we stopped. That is to say, at lunchtimes, we were expected to take them for games or, you know, something like that. And um, we had no time off, really, you know. So, you know, the other thing was, again, it was, again, maybe just the teachers, my colleagues, but this emphasis on sport, you know, they, 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 they just were so addicted to games. And... I think maybe the kids, well, maybe it's just a Montana thing or something like that, you know. But but they would just love taking the kids to do sporting activities instead of doing, you know, their, their, their subject matter, you know. And do you feel that was um, an issue of promoting physical fitness or was it more to promote um, competitiveness between the students? Or was it a, perhaps a blend of both these things? I don't think it was either of them, really. I think they just thought it was a, it was enjoyable, you know. I think they just... Well, I think Montana, you know, it's, it's, it used to be the Wild West, you know what I mean? That, 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 I think, I dare say, some of that sort of frontier spirit, you know, still persists, you might say, you know. But, no, I just think they, they thought it was a bit of a laugh. Now, one thing that both of your books have in great abundance are amusing tales and accounts of your uh, your time in Montana, most of which are focused around cultural misunderstandings. Were there any particular incidents that stand out in your mind? It was... Uh, it, I, I kept getting shocked culturally, I suppose, you know, in small ways throughout the the year. I, I mean, that's why I call it innocent, you know, because things happened, you know, which, you know, I just didn't expect, you know. This particular day, I went to the, the gas station, as you would call it, and, uh, I mean, it sounds stupid, really, but I couldn't open the petrol cap, for example, you know, until a kind gent came along and, you know, showed me what to do. Let me tell you about this car, by the way. The point about the car was that I call it the big blue mean machine in in the book because it was always breaking down. And... Nevertheless, that's the car, you know, I mentioned before, all those thousands of miles that we did. But that that was the one that, uh, you know, took us about. And I just wasn't really um, familiar with it at all. I did a lot of bits to it, I suppose, that cars in in our country didn't... I mean, although it was an old banger. Um, So anyway, the other thing, it's not really culture, I suppose, but one of the first... um, questions I was asked was do you grow any produce and I said what produce what's produce and produce actually turns out to be what we would call produce (laughs) which is a very grand term for what you might grow in your garden like potatoes or leeks or something like that you know so in some ways I suppose we did sort of you know speak you know a different language 
I did know about drummers, of course. I did know not to say to my students, might take out your rubbers, you know, instead of your, you know, your razor. I did, I was warned about that one. Was there any one particular incident which stood out for you as being a kind of defining moment uh, in your early months there in Montana? Well, I think the, it, it was more at the beginning, you know, that I think the encounter with the parents, you know, was the thing that, you know, that, that really got to me more. And, you know, as I said, I took my foot off that pedal, you know, the, those, you know, things settled down. But, um, you know, when I went to Montana, I was a very quiet living sort of a person <laughs> I didn't have any money to go out and join myself anyway but the thing that really got me you know was um, the family you know next door um, I've given them um, aliases you know to protect their innocence but my friend Al the cop was a real sort of live wire, you know, and um, a great appreciator of my country's national product. And, you know, I think one lasting legacy of meeting him was how much he converted me to my national drink as well. I had taken over a couple of bottles for, um, you know, to see me through the year. <laughs> and uh, actually, the first night I went over, what was left, and we're talking about a litre bottle here, remember, was not worth taking back home again, to be honest. Um, so Al was very appreciative of that type of whiskey and insisted everybody else have a go of it as well. And he took me you know, logging, you know, that that was another thing, I suppose, that surprised me. The, 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 Missoula is surrounded by forests, and the citizens are allowed to go and cut any fallen trees and take it back and, um, you know, burn it in their, in their homes. So, you know, we went on some logging expeditions, you know, and... And that was hard work, I can assure you, you know. And, um, they were cut up into four or five foot lengths or something like that. And of course, depending on the thickness of the trunks, they certainly weighed quite a lot. And then that had to be put onto the back of a trunk. And then that was built up higher and higher, you know. So, yes, that was another aspect of Montana life, you know, that I, you know, I never expected. And I was taken on backpacking trips. You know, hiking into the wilderness. There's a funny story on that, actually. We were in Idaho somewhere, because Missoula's just on the Idaho border, as it happens. So anyway, we'd put the tent up, we'd caught fish, which we had for our summer, and uh, put the fire out, got into our sleeping bags, and... Suddenly, well, I understand, we were miles from anywhere. And suddenly, 
there was this eerie, unearthly light. And my colleagues were saying, what, what could that be? One of them suggested it might be a UFO. And uh, first thing he did was he got his gun and went out to, <laughs> to deal with whatever it may be. It is just, it had got, what had happened was it actually got caught, you know, got quite windy and they, uh, wind had revived the embers of, of the fire. But the other thing actually that, that does, that story does bring to mind is the gun culture there. My headmaster, principal, you would say, he had um, 13 guns in his house. Um, they were all hunters. Um, one of my friends, he went every year, he went and got a moose or an elk or a bear even. Um, my other my other colleague was more addicted to, to fishing, you know, but so you either you hunted something or you fished something, I mean and it seems to me that that's just that was par for the course, you know. That, that that's that's what they all did. Uh, so that that was another cultural shock, you know, because I didn't do any of that stuff before. I mean I'm not I could never do any hunting, I could never do that. And to be honest, I'm not very happy about fishing either, to be honest. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I did go on a fishing ep- expedition, or several. Uh, we also, I remember, went on a rafting expedition. We floated down the river on a rubber raft, you know. Yes, so I was exposed to all sorts of things. And actually, I said right from the start, I will do anything. You know, if if somebody suggests to me... Would you like to go and do this, Dave? I said, yes, I will. I'm not going to miss a chance. Until somebody suggested, would you like to do hang gliding? Because they used to jump off the mountain that uh, was you know, just behind the university. And I said, no, I don't think I'll bother with that one. Thanks very much. <laughs> now, one, one thing that comes out of both of your Innocent Abroad books is the fact that you made many lifelong friends in your time in Montana. Now, given the major cultural shifts of the 1980s and 1990s, do you think, having revisited Montana in recent years, that your experience would have been different had it taken place a few years later? Most definitely. The year that I was there, that was 78 to 79, I had absolutely no idea what anybody voted on a subsequent year in the tenure of George W. Bush, I did know. And some were, most of them were Democrats, some were Republicans. But but that was really as far as it went, you know. I mean, we, and I never, never discussed politics with them, you know, when I was there at the time. There didn't really seem as if that um, mattered. Your Innocent Abroad books cover the first six months of your time in Montana. And one of the inquiries that we receive most frequently at Extremist Publishing is whether you will be producing a third book to finish the story. Can we expect that at any point in the the coming years? (laughs) 
Well, I, re- I really, really would like to do it. Um, as you say, I've only done covered six months and I've probably got enough material to do another two books, to be honest. I don't know when I'm going to get the chance because I've got so many more books to write. I would love to do it, but, you know, time is the enemy. I think it might be, you know, in the... If I do ever get round to to doing a a third volume, it might just be a third volume because I'm getting less and less innocent, you know, or I'm I'm becoming more and more experienced, uh, more accustomed to the American way of life. So, you know, there's perhaps not the adventures, you know, that... uh, that, you know, to come, that that we'd fill a book. But I do know that I left the last book, the second book, on a bit of a cliffhanger. And I can reveal that somewhere near the start of the third volume, if ever I get round to it, will tell the tale of how my wife Iona uh, broke her finger in the fan of the big blue mean machine. Um, She had to scoop up the children and take them to the nearest doctor, which was at the end of the street. Uh, And he was actually a gynaecologist by speciality. (laughs) But that is another tale that I hope I will get the chance to tell one of these days. Well, David, I can honestly say that your books have been thought-provoking, humorous, and have really shone an interesting light uh, on cultural differences uh, between us here in Scotland and our, our American friends across the pond. Thank you very much for having taken the time to have a chat with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Tom. I've enjoyed it. An Innocent Abroad and Still Innocent Abroad are published by Extremist Publishing, and are available to buy from all good online retailers and independent booksellers worldwide. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.